is it just me or is everybody outraged all the time about something? Go home today and when you watch your favorite news source, watch for how they want to set you up to be outraged. They say things like this, you're not going to believe what so-and-so said. It will blow your mind when you find out about this bill that's trying to be passed. You know what I'm talking about? Outrage is all around us on social media. Outrage. It's almost like we want to be outraged. Now, no one in the room here, of course, but some people out there seem to be caught up in what I would refer to as a spirit of outrage. Culture, times, groups, organizations, even families develop a kind of spirit. Have you ever noticed that? A spirit that is more than the sum of its parts. Like in my family, if you watch my family growing up, you might say, that, spirit, that family has a spirit of giving or service. We were at church a lot. <laughs> we gave a lot. We were involved a lot. That was important to who we were. We had a spirit of service. And these spirits that we find in families and organizations and in culture, they emerge from the people inside the group and in combination with the surrounding environment. Maybe even churches have certain kinds of spirits that are formed in them over time and then begin to shape them. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, that church down the road, that's a tough church? That church down there, that's an active church. That church over there, that's a welcoming church. You've heard language like that. Churches get spirits. They have spirits. Now in Revelation, we see seven letters written to seven different churches. Why seven, someone might ask. Well, great question. Well, it may be because there were in fact seven prominent churches in the region at that time. Although... Biblical scholars remind us that seven is a special number. Seven is a number that means perfect or complete. So while there may have been actually seven churches, there may have been more, it may be that John uses seven to send this message to the listener about completeness. That in some way, these seven churches are kind of a stand-in for all churches. All churches to come. All churches during that time and since that time may have to deal with some of the th same things that these seven churches had to deal with. Now it's interesting because there are five churches that are spoken about fairly in the negative, And there are two that are spoken fairly in the positive. However, each church has a spirit, I believe, that might destroy them if they're not careful. Each of these letters is addressed to an angel. Did you catch that? What is going on with that angel? Well, biblical scholars, once again, have come up with at least three understandings of what's happening here when it says, say this to the angel. The first answer is a spiritual answer. This is an angel. <clears throat> An angel that maybe oversaw this church. But many scholars don't find that really convincing because the letter is directed not really to an angel, but to a group of people. A group of people whose behavior has actually got them into the, the situation that they're into. 
Their behavior is causing them to act and be and live into a certain kind of spirit. Not an angel. It's not the angel's fault. It's the people. So that led to a second interpretation of what angel might be. Theologians call this the materialist understanding. So perhaps the angel is a stand-in for the person or the leader of this church. However, that word in Greek is not used anywhere else in the New Testament to describe a leader of a church. And once again, these letters are not written to a person, but to a group of people. To be read out loud communally. So the idea of the angel standing in for a person doesn't quite fit. So a third kind of hypothesis which I find interesting and helpful is what's called emergent. That in some way, it is the spirit of the church that's being addressed when John says, say to the angel. He's saying, say to the spirit of this church. This spirit that has developed, right, a kind of corporate personality created and formed by the members and the surrounding community, but now operating in such a way that the spirit shapes and forms the church, reinforcing the church, and it kind of has the congregation in its grasp. Are you with me? Just like a family has a spirit, the church has a spirit. And maybe... That's what John means when he says, say to the angel. So each of the seven churches has a different angel, a different spirit that has emerged from within who they are in combination with the culture that surrounds them. And it leads to the way in which they are acting in the world. Now, if the angels that John is referring to are really a kind of spirit of the churches, what might be the spirit that could threaten the Philadelphia church? Each spirit, even if it's talked about positively at church, there might be something there that the church needs to be aware of, to be concerned about. What is that angel or spirit that Philadelphia, a church that's spoken about positively, what should they be concerned about? Well, in order to answer that question, i got to take you into a little bit of the history of Philadelphia. And if I slip and call it Philly, you'll forgive me. Philadelphia was a modern city in relationship to other ancient cities of the time. It was a border city. It sort of sat at the crossroads of many different cities. And its goal was to be a missionary city. Not Christian missionary. Its goal was to bring Greek and Roman culture and language to the surrounding areas. And it was highly successful. Philadelphia enjoyed considerable prosperity and was a major site for worship and religious festivals, Roman festivals. In fact, it became known as Little Athens. There was also a very large Jewish population in Philadelphia. Interestingly for us, where we live in Southern California, Philadelphia was also a city sitting on a major earthquake fault. We don't know anything about that, do we? And every once in a while, historians tell us there would be an earthquake and the people would flee the city. And after the aftershocks would slow down, they would return to the city and try to rebuild. In 17 CE, a devastating earthquake hit the region, rocked much of the area, and nearly destroyed all of Philadelphia. Eventually, the people returned and attempted to shore up their walls and homes. But historians tell us that the people in Philadelphia lived in a kind of constant fear of what had happened. 
and what might happen again. So while we see that John, the writer of Revelation, loves the church at Philly and even praises it, it's possible that the church lived in a kind of state of fear, a fear that continued to permeate Philadelphia because of the large earthquakes. However, the Christians at Philadelphia had at least five other reasons to be afraid. First, and you can read this in the text, the Christians in Philadelphia had been shut out of the synagogue. The doors have been closed, we read. The Jews there in Philadelphia had decided that the Christians were not part of them and therefore could not worship with them. Now imagine what that would be like for you if suddenly someone said, you can't worship in these, these rooms anymore, these churches anymore. You don't belong here. There's another group that does, but you're not part of them. That might make you a little anxious. Secondly, this meant that these Christians then in Philadelphia would be facing persecution because they were excluded from the synagogue. So this is how this works, remember? The Romans had made special um, um, uh, circumstances for the Jews. The Jews were allowed to worship and do what they do within Roman territory. But if the new Christians were not considered a Jewish sect, which they would not be when they closed the synagogue doors to them, now the Christians don't have any special place in Roman law anymore. You follow me? The Jews are okay, but the Jews have said, you Christians aren't us. So now they're kind of a rogue group, these Christians. They're outside political protection like the Jews are. Third, we learn historically that the Christians in Philadelphia were probably few and probably poor. They probably had very little resources. Fourth, they might have also been terribly scattered with some living outside the city because of the earthquakes and some trying to make it inside the walls of the city. And fifth, the big issue for why these Christians in Philadelphia might have been grappling with a spirit of fear is that they were living in a city shaped by the power and influence of Rome. After the earthquake, the big earthquake in 17 CE, the city was given a new name. It was given a new name that essentially meant Little Caesar or Young Caesar. Now, the city took on that name and a kind of quid pro quo quality because what it suggested is if you take on our name, then we, the Roman government, will care for the city and the inhabitants, and all we ask is that you devote yourself to Rome and to our religious practices. Follow. So perhaps the angel of the church at Philadelphia, or the spirit, if you will, has something to do with the possibility of fear. Excluded from the synagogue, facing persecution from the Jews, and not participating in the Roman religious practices, put the new Christians in a precarious space. If the Christians at Philadelphia were not careful... They might fall, indeed, into a spirit of fear. Let me reiterate something that I think Pastor Joe said last week, maybe saying it slightly differently. I believe with many theologians that the real problem that John, the revelator, is writing about in Revelation is not the Antichrist. The real problem in Revelation 
is not the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The real problem is not the dragon or the tribulation or any other thing that sounds scary in there. The real problem that John is concerned about is Babylon. It shows up over and over and over again, doesn't it, in this book. Now you see, when John writes about Babylon, he's pulling from Jewish history and memory. He wants the readers to connect Rome with Babylon and Rome and Babylon with Egypt. You remember what happens to the Jews in Egypt? They are slaves. As slaves in Egypt, their situation was bad, but at least it was prescribed. At least they knew what to expect. Have you ever noticed it's easier sometimes when you're told what you can and cannot do? When you're given those boundaries? Oh, I know how to do that. I can do that. You may be oppressed, but at least you know where you stand. But there's something different about Babylon and Rome than Egypt. Remember Babylonian exile when the Jews are taken. Unlike Egypt where the Israelites are slaves, in Babylon and Rome, the Christians now are invited into the culture. Not slaves. They're invited to participate. To come and be a part. Join us in what we got going on here. You with me? Slaves can't join. Participants can. That means that the Christians at Philadelphia had really two choices. First, they could stand out, be different, draw attention to themselves, putting themselves at risk and in danger, and therefore live into the potentiality of fear. Or, they could assimilate to the culture around them. They could fit in if they chose to. They could be like the Romans. When in Rome... However, however, I think John wants to say to us today that if we fit in, if we choose to be a part of Babylon, we are exchanging the way of Jesus for the Roman way. Or for John, the Babylonian way. Now psychology tells us that when humans get frightened, they do several things. One of several things, and they all begin with the letter F. You've heard it, right? We fight. Come on. I'm afraid. Let's go. Let's fight, right? Or we flee. I got motions for all these. We flee. <laughs> right? We run away. This is scary. I'm out. Or we freeze. Maybe if I just stay really, if I stay really still, they won't see me. Right? Or a new one that trauma researchers have identified is what they call fawn. Fawn, like a little deer, big eyes, right, sweet face. To fawn is to become an accommodator. To fawn is to do what the other asks you to do. To fawn is to fit in with the perpetrator, the, vic- the, the person who's victimizing you. It's, it's to not make waves, to not make trouble, to fit in. And sometimes we do that when we're afraid. So when we're afraid, it's so easy to drift into becoming shaped and formed by the culture around us. 
It's a kind of fawning, if you will. Especially when everyone is so outraged all the time and telling you what you should feel and telling you how to be safe, right? Okay, okay. You're right. I didn't mean to upset anybody. I don't want to be a problem. I'll fit in. I'll do what I'm supposed to. I won't make waves. So we look for a way not to be afraid. And then we cling to whatever it is that we believe provides safety. We cling to whatever we believe provides safety. Now this got me thinking about the situation in 1 John. That 1 John is speaking about in chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Listen to these words. Just listen carefully with revelation in mind. Little children, it's the last hour. Ooh, sounds kind of revelation-y. Just as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have appeared. What? I thought there was one. I thought we were all supposed to figure it out. Tea leaves or something, right? No, many have come and have appeared. This is how we know it's the last hour, says John. They went out from us, but they were not really part of us. If they had been part of us, they would have stayed with us. But by going out from us, they showed they are all not part of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. You know that no lie can come from the truth. Who is the liar? Isn't it the person who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This person is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. Anyone that denies that Jesus is the Christ, John tells us in 1 John, is an antichrist. What does that mean? Why is that important to us? I doubt that any of us are going to walk out of here today and say, Jesus is not the Christ. Right? We're not going to say that. So how do we think about this? Is it a message for us in some ways? Well, I want to suggest to you that we deny that Jesus is the Christ whenever we live as functional atheists. Functional atheists. You know what that is? I'm going to tell you. That's whenever we proclaim Jesus with our lips, but we live as if we don't really believe. Oh, my. Come on, church. If I was in another church right now, people would be standing on their feet. They'd say, preach. Tell us the truth. Being a functional atheist is whenever we proclaim Jesus with our lips. Oh, I love everybody, but we live as if we don't really believe it, except for those people. By this, I mean whenever we live more in line with the values and norms and ethics of Babylon than the kingdom of God. Now, someone's going to say, Brad, are you suggesting that America is Babylon? Sometimes. 
Let me make something really clear to you for a second. And you could fire me because I'm only part-time. And I got a cold and I don't feel good today and so I don't care. I do care. I love you. <laughs> America and the kingdom of God is like a Venn diagram. You remember Venn diagrams from school? Two circles that intersect but don't lie completely on top of one another? There are moments, friends, when values and ethics in America line up with kingdom of God ethics. Thanks be to God. Right? Imagine two circles overlapping. And in that middle, that's what they have in common. But there's a lot of space where they don't have things in common. Where the ethics and values of America are not the ethics and values of the kingdom of God. Well, what are the kingdom of God ethics, Brad? Glad you asked. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. Go read it. I dare you. In fact, I double-dog dare you. I triple-dog dare you to read the Sermon on the Mount every day for a month and see what you think. See how that changes you. That's going to be boring, Brad. I already know the Sermon on the Mount. When I say read the Bible, I mean read it and then read it again and read it a third time and read it slow. And by the way, invite the Spirit into it before you read. Teach me something new today, Spirit. Help me to see something I've never seen before. Read the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over again and read about Jesus, not only what he said, but what he did. Then you'll start to get the kingdom of God ethics. Then you'll be able to to determine no matter what culture or setting you're finding in, how is that Venn diagram overlapping and not overlapping? The research that some of us have looked at around here recently on churches that grow young are churches that spend the vast majority of their time preaching about Jesus and not about doctrine, not about do's, not about don'ts, not about how we're different from the Lutherans. They are preaching about the all-inclusive, never-waning, reckless love of God as revealed in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, young people seem to like and be open to Jesus, but they're not that interested in the church. Friends, maybe that's on some of us old-timers, and I count myself among them. Remember, Revelation is a book of apocalyptic literature. It's not the only one in the Bible, by the way. But apocalypse means to reveal, to uncover. And that is what this genre of literature does for us. It uncovers the way in which we're tempted to live according to Babylonian ethics rather than kingdom ethics. It gives us a new set of lenses, if you will. And the church at Philadelphia reminds us that to live into fear is to be tempted to live into Babylonian ethics. When we become afraid, remember, we cling We cling to whatever we think is going to make us safe, and oftentimes it's not the kingdom of God. But here's the good news, and this is why reading Philadelphia is fun, right? Because God promises the church in Philadelphia, and by extension us, that those who remain faithful to kingdom ethics, he will provide you with an open door that no one can shut. Come on. He will make us pillars. He will write his name on us. And he will write the name of the city that is coming down from heaven, the new Jerusalem, on us. 
Wow. Wow. What do we do? Remain faithful, says John the Revelator. Don't give in to the angel of fear. But it's easy to be afraid when everyone's outraged all the time. I found this on the web, so it must be true. <laughs> it said that do not be afraid appears in the Bible 365 times. That's a little too on the nose, isn't it? It's a little too on the nose. I didn't count them, but who knows? It's on the web, must be true. But I know Jesus said it. He said it powerfully in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. You hear it? I don't give you safety through Babylonian ethics. I don't give it to you as the world gives. But do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Friends, what are you afraid of today? What are you afraid of? And when you become afraid, how and to what do you cling? Hear this carefully from a pastor psychologist. It's not wrong to be afraid. But it's problematic to live into a spirit of fear. To let fear become your spirit and your angel. So this morning as we open these altars, as we always do, come here if you want to be anointed with oil. Come here if you want to pray. I want you to think as the band sings this song, I want you to ask the Lord a question. Lord, what am I afraid of? And what do I cling to that's not you? And when they're done singing, then I'm going to open the altar, okay? Don't move till I tell you. And I want to invite you to come and lay some fears at the altar this morning. I want you to lay some burdens down by the riverside. <laughs> I want you to cast all your cares upon him. So as the band plays, ask the Lord to reveal to you, what am I afraid of? And how do I cling?